Well, good morning. This is a little bit odd. We have a beautiful auditorium here, but it is not nearly as beautiful as when you um, are here. I'm deeply thankful for the worship team. who They were here early this morning uh, preparing uh, to lead us in worship, and I'm deeply thankful for them and uh, thankful for you uh, tuning in on uh, Facebook Live or uh, our website. Uh, thankful for all of the people that worked countless hours over the last few days uh, to make uh, this happen. Um, you know, uh, it was in 1863 that our president, Abraham Lincoln, called for the very first national day of prayer. It was when our country was facing the scourge of civil war. And uh, just this week, our current president, Donald Trump, um, also declared today to be a national day of prayer and has asked for uh, churches across our country to, to pray um, for this scourge, I suppose, that we are facing um, right now. And so I want to honor that. I want to do that. Uh, and as I get ready to, uh, to pray, perhaps you've seen this, been circulating on Facebook. Uh, when Martin Luther was alive, um, he faced the plague uh, in his day, uh, and he wrote these very uh, wise words. I think they can help us as we uh, try to deal with what we're facing in in our country today. So listen to what he said. I shall ask God mercifully to protect us. Then I shall fumigate, help purify the air, administer medicine, and take it. I shall avoid places and persons where my presence is not needed in order not to become contaminated and thus uh, perchance inflict and pollute others and so cause their death as a result of my negligence. If God should wish to take me, he will surely find me and I have done what he has expected of me, and so I am responsible for either my, uh, not responsible for either my own death or the death of others. If my neighbor needs me, however, I shall not avoid place or person. I shall go freely as stated above. See, this is such a God-fearing faith because it is neither brash nor foolhardy and does not tempt God. And I think those are good words for us as we go to prayer. Would you join me? Father, we thank you uh, for the great privilege that we have to, uh, to approach you in a time of national. Indeed, it's not only a national day of prayer, it's a global day of prayer. And we want to pray um, for um, what we are facing, not only as a country, but as a world. And uh, our, our prayer is that you would mercifully um, shine upon us, that, that you would care for us and that you would protect us. I, I think of nations around the world that, that, that are facing significant challenge right now with Iran and, and, and South Korea and Italy and, of course, China. And we pray for those countries and others that are, that are being brought into this, our own um, country. And we pray for wisdom. We pray for protection. I pray for our brothers and sisters in those countries um, that you would help, that you would protect them, and that, that for all of us, that we would approach this wisely, and that you would give us wisdom as to how we might, um, yes, certainly stay healthy, but would you help the church to be the church, and in as much as you call us, would you help us to step into um, the challenge and, and minister to each other? and to care for um, people in our community. Um, this is an opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to be um, a light. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. May the gospel shine brightly. Would you, through this, would you call many, many people uh, to yourself? We trust you 
our good and sovereign God. In Jesus' name, amen. I begin by asking uh, you a question, what is a Christian? You see, the word is used so loosely, it's largely lost its meaning. It's interesting to note that it's actually only used three times in the New Testament, all in a somewhat negative sense. In, in, in Acts chapter 11, the first time it was used, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. But, but know this, it was said in derision. These disciples, these, these are followers of Jesus of Nazareth as the Christ. Then in Acts chapter 26, as Paul was giving his defense before King Agrippa, it was clear that he did so with evangelistic intent, and Agrippa responded, hear it dripping with sarcasm. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? The third time that it was used is in our own book that we're studying, 1 Peter chapter 4. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed. You see, then if you suffered, if you were a disciple, a a, a believer in this Jesus as the the Christ, uh, then there was the potential for shame. And Peter says, don't be ashamed of that shameful term. And, And so the term was used derisively, sarcastically negatively. But disciples of Jesus bore that name joyfully, even though it cost them. Now, fast forward to the present day, and claiming to be a Christian in our own country will cost you, well, almost nothing. The the word has become almost meaningless. Ask people if they are Christian, and the response is often something like this, of course, I'm an American, aren't I? It's now almost devoid of its meaning, of being a follower, a disciple of Jesus, and is certainly devoid of any kind of suffering. Of course, we understand that this is changing. More and more people are abandoning the term. Fewer today in the U.S. say they are Christian than perhaps ever before. It's become quite popular to say something like this, I'm spiritual, spiritual, not religious. And, and by that, many mean I'm spiritual, but I don't have much to do with any organized religion said with derision like the Christian faith. And so the term, again, has almost lost its meaning. Not for us, of course, as followers of Jesus, but the word has been so degraded as to mean, well, virtually Nothing. All that by way of introduction to ask two questions. First, are you a Christian? Now, now, please do not answer that question too quickly. Don't confuse being a Christian with going to church or, or even giving to a church, being an American, being good, being raised in a Christian family. Just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean that you are. I've heard it said this way, God has no grandchildren being spiritual, or even reading your Bible and praying. So I suppose we should define what a Christian is. As I've already implied, a Christian is a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus. So, so first it is to believe the gospel. The, the word means good news ab- ab- about Jesus. Now that is, for starters, we are sinners, having rebelled against our very good Creator and God. And as such, we need a Savior since there is nothing that we can do about our sinful condition. 
The, the truth is no amount of good will compensate for our bad. It's not as if God grades on the curve. And that's the bad news. But the good news is God loved us and did something himself to save us from our sin and to bring us into relationship with him. Namely this, he sent his own son in the flesh, that is Jesus, became a man so that he could do what we never could, namely live a perfect life. And then having done so, he died in our place, taking our sin in his perfect body on the cross and dying not for himself, but for us. And by simple faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners, we can be saved, forgiven, sins removed, and brought back into a relationship with God. It's not just good news. It's great news. But now, can I bring us back to the, to the first time that the word Christian was used? In Acts chapter 11, we read the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. You see, it was disciples, followers of Jesus who were called Christians, not just those who tipped their hats at Jesus, not just those who even believed in Jesus as the Christ, not even those who were somehow involved in organized religion like the church. It was those who followed Jesus. Which brings me to the second question I want to ask today. What then does a Christian look like? I mean, it is true that the majority of people in the U.S., and I'm not actually sure of the current numbers um, today, but in the past it's been the vast majority of people in the U.S. consider themselves Christian. Do they look like it? How, How can you tell? Is it just coming to church on Sunday? If so, we got a problem because you can't come. What does a Christian look like? Peter tells us in our ongoing study of the book of 1 Peter. Read the text with me. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 12 say this. To sum up, all of you be harmonious or of the same mind, sympathetic, brotherly, or having brotherly love, kind-hearted or compassionate, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For, and then he quotes Psalm 34, the one who desires life to, to, to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So, what then does a Christian look like? In our study of 1 Peter, we are well into the main body of the letter, extending from the middle of chapter 2 to the middle of chapter 4. Let me briefly review for those who may be joining us for the first time. Peter is writing to a group of believers in Asia Minor, that's modern-day Turkey, who are suffering for their faith. They, they, They were Christians, you see, and so they were being persecuted. So he writes to encourage them. He starts by reminding them of this incredible salvation that they had, chapter 1. And then he encourages them and us to live beautiful lives with excellent behavior so that in the very thing in which they slander us, they will, because of our 
Good deeds, interesting phrase, because of our good deeds glorify God on the day that he visits, likely visits them with salvation. So what then does this beautiful life look like? Same question, what does a Christian look like? Well, we live beautiful lives of submission. He went through three relationships which involved those under authority, and he encouraged them to submit. You see, the accusation could be made against the church that they they were leaving um, their foreign gods. They were leaving their husbands. They were leaving their masters. Not true, he said. And and, and not um, all of that is true. These were those relationships, believers and unbelieving governments. Peter called Christians to submit to governing authorities. This, by the way, is one reason you're in your living rooms right now. We'd love to be meeting together as we normally do, but our government in proper concern for the spread of the coronavirus strongly encouraged people, actually mandated as of yesterday, not to gather in groups larger than 100. But more importantly, we want to shepherd you well. We want to protect the most vulnerable among us, our seniors, and so we decided to not meet here and in the church physically until this thing passes. We have sought to joyfully submit to our governing authorities who have our best interest in mind, at least in this particular case. Second was slaves and unbelieving masters. You'll remember that Peter encouraged believing um, slaves to submit to their masters even when those same masters were cruel. Remember, we're trying to make Christ and his gospel beautiful, attractive, winsome, so submit. Third was wives and unbelieving husbands. Peter made it clear that by living the word before their husbands, focusing on internal beauty, not just external beauty, and emulating holy women, that that, that their wives could, could actually influence their unbelieving husbands prayerfully to believe the gospel. Well, then very briefly last week, we saw Peter address husbands to to live with their wives in an understanding way, a supportive way, and and an honoring way. All of that bringing us to our text today, where Peter sums up his thoughts, at least to this point. Christians should live beautiful lives before each other, in verse 8, before an unbelieving world that even opposes them, in verse 9, and then he quotes Psalm 34 for support. That'll form our outline, starting with a summation of what Christians look like, answering our question in the morning, what does a Christian look like? He tells us in verse 8, you call yourself a Christian? Here you go. This is the qualification part of your job description. Look at it with me. To sum up, or finally that could be translated, Peter says Christians should look like the following five character traits. In fact, there's not even a verb in, in this particular ver- verse. He just says, finally, everyone, and then he gives us five adjectives. But notice first, Peter says all of you. Th- this is not just for the spiritual elite. These are traits that we should all pursue if we want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. All of you who claim to be disciples of Christ live like this. We've seen what Christians believe. Now we see this is what Christians look like. Now you should know that these words were widely used in the Greco-Roman world at this time. Many pursued most of them. In fact, four out of five of them, interestingly, within their homes, within their families, 
Uh, Of course you want to be harmonious and sympathetic and brotherly uh, and kind-hearted in your families. But when Peter takes those words and applies them to believers, to us, this would have been a bit surprising. You didn't act this way necessarily, you see, in the world. You stood up for your own rights. But Peter says, we Christians, this is the way that we live. Because, you see, we are a family. If, if we're facing hostility in the world, we don't in, within the Christian community. The church needs to be a place where family can come and find not further insult and injury, but they can find loving care. This is what he's telling us. So he says, this is how we act within the family to preserve our community. I mean, if you stop and think about it, the the opposite of all of these characteristics would destroy community. To not be like-minded, that that is, believe whatever you you want, that it doesn't matter. To not be sympathetic, to lack brotherly love, to not be compassionate, and I love this last one, be proud. That would destroy community, especially when the world is opposing us, when we are facing pressures without. We need these traits within to preserve community. So these are incredibly important. First, he says, be harmonious. The the word is actually like-minded or of the same mind. It it speaks of sharing a common heritage of faith. In in other words, as it relates to eternal truths, be like-minded. That doesn't mean that we all like the same things. We can have differences. We can, um, as, it, as it relates to things that are outside of the Word of God, uh, for example, we can't all be Carolina fans. Somebody has to like Duke. We, we don't all do the same things, but when it comes to the eternal truths of the Word of God, we are of one mind. In other words, while we don't pursue uniformity, all looking the same, you know, wearing plaid shirts on the worship team, we, we do pursue unity by agreeing together concerning eternal spiritual matters. That is one reason why we spend so much time studying the Bible, to conform our minds and our actions to it. One author pointed out that this is the foundational value that binds us together, that unifies people from various races and backgrounds and socioeconomic status and, and, and even former religions because we are now bound together by our faith in Jesus Christ and we are together committed to the apostolic teaching. That is the Word of God. Second, we should be sympathetic. You know, God made us emotional beings who have feelings. Christians should be people who enter into the feelings and emotions of other believers Now, why we should be sympathetic to all people, most agree that Peter is talking here about being sympathetic uh, within the community toward one another. Paul said it this way, as members of one body, we should rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. In other other words, we care so much about each other that we emotionally experience what others among us are experiencing. You are so important to me that if you are rejoicing, so am I. And if you are mourning, so am I. And further, it does not just mean that I feel with you, but when possible, I do something about it. 
going to be talking about that in the, in the weeks and days ahead, or days and weeks ahead as we try to figure out how we can care for one another uh, during this time. But I commit to you that we're going to do that. Third, we are to, to be brotherly is what my translation has, but more literally, we are to express brotherly love. This is actually right in the middle of the list in, in this particular structure. Uh, Peter puts it there to make it most central. We are to be people of brotherly or family love. I've said this, i said it this way many times, but let me say it again. You cannot say that you love Jesus, but that you don't really like the church. And that gets back to what I said at the beginning. You cannot say, I'm spiritual, but I don't really have much to do with organized religion like the church uh, in Christianity. That, 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 that is not expressing brotherly love. We need each other to, to love each other, to serve one another. Now, we often emphasize the love part of that particular word, which I suppose is fine, but notice this is brotherly love. A, a, a further emphasis is since we are family, this is what he is saying here, since we are family, brothers and sisters in Christ, we love one another. By this, Jesus said, all people will know that you are my disciples, followers, Christians, by your love. That's also why I will, will remind us over and over to not get too comfortable with this live streaming thing. This is a need. It is not meant to be a convenience. And as soon as this health issue passes, this co coronavirus, we will be gathering again physically because we need each other. The truth is I need you and you need me. We are to express our love to each other in practical and tangible ways. And it's a little bit difficult to do that if we're never together. Fourth, we're to be kind-hearted. Again, that's my translation, but the word is more literally compassionate. So one of my favorite words in the, in the Greek language is the word splenkna, from which we get our word spleen. Sometimes the word is translated bowels. How would you like that if I said, I love you with all my bowels? You see, everyone knows that sometimes uh, deep feelings of compassion or concern hit you right in the, in the gut, in the pit of your stomach, hence the word spleen. Now, to be clear, we're not talking about pity. Pity is, a, is condescending. Pity implies superiority and inferiority. Rather, to be compassionate is to have such a caring concern for others in our community that you feel it right in the, in the pit of your stomach, right in your gut. You care so much that it is unsettling, even, even upsetting to you. And, and further, then you do something about it. That's what it means, you say, to be a Christian. This is Christianity 101. Which brings us to the last character trait. Now, this one would have been shocking to the world of that particular time. Christians are to be humble. That was a characteristic not pursued. In fact, it was shunned at that time. It was despised. One, one author says, humility was a degraded social status, regarded as a sign of weakness and shame. It, it, it kind of implies an inability to, to defend your own honor. You see, this was an honor-shame culture where self-honor was one of the highest, if not the highest, virtue. So you were expected, actually, to be proud, to stand up for yourself. Sounds not unlike today. Humility is not much pursued 
today either. We have so much emphasis on self, on putting yourself first, of having a high self-worth and a high self-esteem. In fact, we hear an awful lot about (laughs) self-care, which I suppose is fine. But the emphasis in the Christian community is on humility and on others. Now, now please understand, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's actually not thinking of yourself at all. It's putting the needs and concerns of others first. Do do you see how this would impact community? Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Does that sound familiar? Maintaining the same love. United in spirit, intent on one purpose, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So in our community, as a church family, this is what Christians are supposed to look like. And so can I say this gently? And I know know that you know when I say something gently, I'm going to say something hard. If you are sitting there in your living room thinking, well, this is the problem with the church. They are not very sympathetic. They're not very loving, compassionate, and and humble. And I have been deeply hurt. I understand that may be true. And I'm terribly sorry if it is. But can I encourage us to lift our eyes from ourselves and toward others? to be others-focused as this text is calling us to be. The New Testament focus is not on rugged individualism, not on what I can get as a consumer, what I can receive, but it is focused on community and what I can give. All too often, I think people come to church, they get involved in a church for what they can get rather than what they can give. Karen Jobes, one of my commentators, writes of our Western society, even the church, listen, An individual whose needs are no longer being met by a community terminates the commitment and seeks a new and more obliging group. Such thinking runs counter to the qualities of 1 Peter chapter 3. The truth is we need each other. So I want to challenge us to focus on one another, not so much ourselves. Think of it this way, how much better off would all of us be if everyone was focusing on my needs rather than just me focusing on my needs? Now, that describes community within the church family, but what about out in the world, especially as the world is becoming more and more hostile to our faith? And and you should know that with this verse, um, Peter transitions, and he's going to be talking about suffering a lot uh, for the next chapter and a half. It's going to govern a lot of what he says. You think I talk too much about suffering, take it up with Peter. Verse 9 says, to a community receiving much opposition and persecution, he says these words, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. When we are mistreated, what do we want? We want some payback. That's what we want if our own honor is of highest value. When we're insulted, we want to say something back. You see, that's part of our fallen human nature. But, but, but we are called to do something else. 
He says, don't return evil for evil. Don't return insult for insult. This, not only did Jesus model uh, this for us as we're seeking to walk in his steps. Remember from chapter 2, who when reviled, reviled not again. But it's also what he taught. In Luke chapter 6, for example, we read, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Don't let those words just kind of go in one ear and out the other. Look at what he just said. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Those are challenging words. You say, how can I love my enemies when I don't even like them? (laughs) You see, our problem is we think of love as when you really, really like someone. But love here is expressed in acting rightly toward our enemies, toward those who even oppose us. Our our hope, of course, is that, as we saw in chapter 2, they will see our good deeds and and believe. But, But the point here is we love them in action whether we feel an emotional attachment or not. We don't mistreat them because they have mistreated us. When everything in you wants revenge, the Christian response is not payback. It is not trading barbs and insults. It's not talking about them to other people, even in the privacy of your own homes. It is allowing God to exact justice. Remember, don't seek vengeance. Allow God to do that because he'll do that rightly. But it's actually a bit more than that. Jesus and, and then Peter, following his teachings, goes a very difficult step further. Not only do we not return evil and insults, instead, we give a blessing. That is challenging. When we are wronged, especially for our faith, we are to return that wrong with good. You see, the word blessing is actually uh, the the word from which we get our word eulogy. It means good words. When someone abuses you, when they mistreat you, we look for good ways to return that evil with blessing. While they slander us and gossip about us and attack us verbally, he is saying that we speak well of them. We speak well to them. We speak good words. We actually ask for God's favor on them. That means certainly at least we pray for them. But, but more, we don't just clench our teeth. That's what I'm prone to do. We don't just clench our teeth when reviled and say nothing. We speak good words of them. Further, we return evil with good deeds. Do you remember how Peter began this main body of the letter? Keep your behavior excellent among unbelievers so that they will see your good deeds even when they slander you. They're supposed to see our good deeds toward who? Toward them. We actually return evil with good words and good deeds. One of my commentaries reminded me of a story that I once heard. It's a great way to illustrate this truth. Christian soldier um, a soldier who was a Christian was living in the barracks with his particular, particular unit. One, every evening before bed, he would read his Bible and, and pray to much derision from his fellow soldiers, especially the one who was right across the aisle in the bunk next to him. He would make fun of him. He would revile him for his faith. In fact, one night he took that persecution a bit far, throwing his muddy boots at the Christian. The next morning... Those same boots were returned to his bedside, cleaned and shined, ready for inspection. 
The story says that many of the soldiers in that unit eventually became Christians. Now, I don't know if that particular story is true, but it is a great example of returning evil with blessing. How can you do that? How can you do that when reviled, especially for your faith? You remember Jesus, who when he was mistreated and reviled, died for the very ones who killed him. You see, to this we were called, this giving blessing in return for evil, so that we might receive a blessing. What does that mean? Blessing in this life, perhaps? But, but most agree that Peter is speaking more of our future blessing, our inheritance that we are promised to receive. Remember, he talked about, a lot about that in chapter 1. And if that is true, we do these things so that we might inherit a blessing that presents a bit of a challenge to us. So, so you're saying we act this way, we give blessings so that in the future we will receive the blessing of eternal life? Is that right? That sounds like that we are doing things to earn our salvation, to earn our inheritance. Not exactly. But doing good things, that is acting like, uh, like a Christian, looking like a Christian is proof that we are in fact Christians. I go back to that statistic that I quoted uh, some uh, moments ago when the vast majority of people in America call themselves Christians. Do they act like it? Do they meet this job description? We look like Christians, and it is proof that we are, in fact, Christians and that we will receive our future guaranteed inheritance. But if we say... I believe in Jesus, but don't follow him. In other words, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a disciple. That doesn't even go together. I'm not seeking to act like him. We're proving that we do not, in fact, know him. And we do not, in fact, have a future blessing promised. To be very clear, Christians act like Christians not to earn salvation, but to prove that we have already been saved. If you just prayed a prayer and it has not changed your life, this is not your job description, I want to be clear, that's a problem. I say, I say that because I love you. Well, Peter then goes on to quote Psalm 34 to support his point. There is a bit of a difference here. David wrote it, desiring to see life and experience good days in this life. Peter, I believe, and most believe, however, I believe that he's pointing to the future. His readers were suffering greatly. And there is no promise that things were going to get better in this life. In fact, for many of them, it did not. So he holds out the promise of life and good days in our future inheritance. The one who desires life to love and see good days must, he says it, must do some things. Again, these are not things that we do to earn salvation, but these are things that Christians do because they have salvation, because they have a future inheritance, and our lives are not so much focused on the here and now, not so much focused on my own honor, but on what God promises for the future, and because He promises, we do these things. He who desires the good days of future eternal life must, well, he must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. We don't speak evil or deceit to those who would do the same to us. Remember, Peter has just encouraged us to, to not return evil with evil, to not return insult with insult, but he said instead with a blessing. And so the psalmist says, keep your tongue from evil. 
even in the midst of suffering. And by the way, David wrote this particular psalm, it is said, when he was fleeing for his life from persecution from Saul. He had been anointed to be king. There's a little bit of a problem. Saul was still king. So Saul sought to kill him. And David yet never insulted or did evil to Saul. He's calling us to do the same thing to those who oppose us. Instead, we must turn away from evil and do what? And do good. You see, it is not enough to just hold your peace. It it is not enough to just clench your teeth. We must do good even to those who do evil. Remember what Jesus said. He who slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other. If someone compels you to go one mile, go another. You see, we are to seek peace with all people, even with those who oppose us. And by doing so, we prove ourselves to be Christians. After all, we are reminded the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and he hears our prayers. You remember what we said last week. Husbands... If you mistreat your wives, disobeying the command to live with them in an understanding, supported, and honoring way, your prayers will be hindered. In other words, we cannot live in, uh, in evil, uh, ignoring God's commands, and expect God will hear us. The same is true actually here. He broadens it to all believers. His eyes are on his children who live like his children, and he hears and answers their prayers. And further, his face... It's a way of speaking of his judgment is against those who do evil. In other words, this psalm, this text is very serious. You see, I started by asking what is a Christian, and I suppose that most of us would have gotten the belief part right. We believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners. And by simple faith in Jesus, you can be saved. And I want to be clear, that is absolutely true. But to be a Christian is also to be a disciple a follower of Jesus. Yes, it is by simple faith in Jesus and his work that we are born again. But how then does a Christian live proving that we are his disciples? Well, we passionately pursue peace in our community, living in like-mindedness, in sympathy, in brotherly love, in compassion, and in humility. And toward those outside the community, even those who oppose us, we bless We have a great opportunity to do that in these days. We bless so that even when they slander us, they will see our good deeds. They will glorify God on the day that he visits them with salvation. So so what is a Christian? What does a Christian look like? We love the church and we love our community. Let's do that.